I was just a 14-year-old twerp with my parents. We were visiting the relatives in Norway. And then I looked out in the park, and it was speckled with other families, with parents loving their children as much as my parents loved me. It occurred to me, wow, this world is home to literally billions of equally precious children of God. And I wouldn't have had that appreciation had I not gone halfway around the world. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Rick Steves. He's a popular public television host, a travel writer, best-selling guidebook author. And this summer of all summers, you didn't get to spend your usual four months in Europe. And I'm wondering what you thought of summer in the U.S. Well, my routine has been to go to Europe. Every summer I go to Europe and work. So this has been my, well, during COVID, it's my first summer at home since I was a kid. Yeah. And that was a long, long time ago. It reminded me there's more to life than what I think is the most important thing in life, <laughs> as far as my uh, vocation goes and so on. I love to travel, but this last couple of years I've not traveled. And I've, uh, I've made a point, Steve, of uh, employing what I consider the traveler's mindset at home. And it really is an important life skill. I was thinking as I was stuck at home during the pandemic, well, what makes a good traveler? And what makes a good traveler is somebody who's curious, somebody who's willing to get out of their comfort zone and try new things and not be judgmental and, uh, and, and just be kind of adventurous. I thought, okay, I'm at home. I can do the same thing. I can be curious. I can try new things. I can get out of my comfort zone. And I've learned that there are exciting things that I never really appreciated. I mean, simple stuff, cooking. You know, all my life I've had a bad attitude about cooking. I just want to be like have a healthy picnic, basically, or, 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 or go out to a restaurant or something. And now I'm excited about what's in the fridge. And I'm excited about, you know, mixing things up on the, on the stove or just to, to appreciate something new. I, all my life, I've never really cut through a crispy onion. And now I have. I, I just bought an expensive set of knives and my kids are saying, who is this guy? Uh, so, th- so that's been a, a blessing for me in the last year because, I mean, I don't have any great regrets. I love spending all my time traveling, but I'm realizing that uh, cooking makes a lot of sense. And it's now I've got a new dimension to my life. My girlfriend has, happens to have a couple of dogs. And uh, the first time I, I went to her house and I saw, oh, she's got a dog. Oh, she's got two dogs. I just thought... Oh, it's just going to be a deal breaker, you know, but because um, <laughs> I just didn't get dogs because they're impractical. They're inefficient if you're going to be a traveler. But now I understand why dogs are such a big part of so many people's lives. And I actually have a different respect for people who are out walking their dogs. And I realize it humbles me to realize that there's uh, different things you can get excited about. So this COVID time has been, in a lot of ways, it's been sort of God's way of uh, telling me to slow down. It's been kind of therapy for a workaholic. It's reminded me there's more to life than increasing its speed. And, and some of the more uh, immediate things, some of the more basic things really are lovely dimensions of enjoying life here. I like hearing you apply your travel skills to your actual life at home. And some listeners may be thinking, yes, I know who Rick Steves is. I like Rick Steves, but why is he speaking on a show like In Good Faith? I think your most recent book is For the Love of Europe. Is that correct? Yes. But before that, I was reading Travel as a Political Act, How to Leave Your Baggage Behind. And 
You had several things, even just in the intro to this, that quite struck me about being open-minded about how other people live. And in this case, I'm going to apply it to various faiths. And you tell this beautiful story of being a 14-year-old in a park in Norway. Do you mind telling me that story? Oh, yeah. And I started my Travel as a Political Act book with a story like that because it talks about how travel makes us global citizens. It gives us a much better appreciation for the fact that if you're a person of faith, you understand we're all children of God. And if we're all children of God, we're all equally precious and and lovable. I was just a 14-year-old twerp with my parents. We were visiting the relatives in Norway. We were in a big park behind the palace. For some reason, I was looking up at them, and they were up against the sky, and I was relaxing or something. And I thought, my parents are just loving me inexplicably. I knew they didn't have a lot of money, and they were making big compromises in their first trip to Europe in their lives uh, in order to take their son along. And I just thought, oh, God, they just really love me. And then I looked out in the park, and it was speckled. I can see it to this day. Uh, It was just speckled like some Monet painting with other families, with parents loving their children as much as my parents loved me. And even from my little ego and ethnocentric 14-year-old perspective, it occurred to me, wow, this world, and I remember vividly what I thought, this world is home to literally billions of equally precious children of God. And I wouldn't have had that appreciation had I not gone halfway around the world to recognize that there are parents loving their kids there, just like my parents and my friends' parents do in my little hometown. Later on in that same trip, 1969, I was on the carpet in front of the TV in my Norwegian cousin's house, and we were watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. Mm. And this was the global broadcast. And again, it was one of those Eurekas. And I was sitting there, and when I look back on it, I'm just thinking, I was kind of a freakishly thoughtful little 14-year-old because in my own little way, I I realized that, hey, back home, everybody is waving American flags and going, isn't this great? America's on the moon. And then I was in Norway, and if there was a global flag, the Norwegians would have been waving a global flag because all over the world, people were celebrating this. Of course, it was an American accomplishment, but it was a global accomplishment, and the whole world was celebrating. And I'm so thankful that I got that reminder that we're part of a bigger community. And of course, when you put that in a, in a Christian context, again, we're all children of God. That means we're all brothers and sisters. And a great thing about travel is you get to know the family. I mean, why am I so passionate about traveling? Well, if you put it, again, through my Christian lens, it's an opportunity to get to know the family all the children of God on this planet. And that's a beautiful way to get closer to God in itself. How did you learn this? What was your home religious training? Uh, I was raised Lutheran. I still am Lutheran. My grandparents came over from Norway. So, you know, it's interesting. You know, I I married a good uh, Irish uh, girl who is going to be Catholic. And my family is came from Norway, so we're uh, Lutheran. And that's just been my family heritage. The fact that you thought those things at age 14, though, had you always believed in God? Was that always with you? It was um, always with me. I was, you know, raised going to church every Sunday. My parents took that responsibility serious of, uh, you know, giving their kids a religious upbringing. Uh, But when I read my journals, I've got these journals that I wrote just diligently. I wrote them religiously. 
uh, for every one of my trips. When I was 16 years old, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 years old, every year I wrote a 200 or 300 page carefully written journal. During COVID, I had them all transcribed and I've been reading through them. I haven't read them for 40 years. And I'm amazed looking back on it, how I was struggling with my relationship with God, not fighting it, just exploring it and uh, embracing it and uh, finding the different dimensions of it in my travels. And when I think about it, it's so fun to look back on things and see what was the framework of your mindset. For me, the road was church. The road can be school. The road can be adventure. The road can be filled with uh, romantic uh, opportunities. The road can be hedonism. And for me, it's a little bit of all that stuff, but it's, it's fundamentally church. It's a way to, to get to know creation. And to me, I learn more about my home by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. I learn more about myself by getting out of my comfort zone. Uh, when I travel, I become uh, a citizen of the planet. I become more appreciative of our Heavenly Father, and I become more appreciative of the creation that we've been blessed with and the fragility of our environment. I'm also more open to beautiful religious thinking of other faiths. Um, you know, Muhammad said, don't tell me how educated you are. Tell me how much you've traveled. Every Muslim is supposed to make the Hajj, you know, to go to Mecca. Yes. A long trip on foot in past, in past uh, generations. But what he really wanted to do was not make everybody crowd around the, the Kaaba, but was to have everybody get out of their home and to get on the road and, and to get to know the world a little bit. And progressive Muslims interpret the command or whatever to, to go to Mecca as a command to get out and leave your home and get to know the rest of the world. I just think it's very important. I think, it's, um, I, I think it strengthens someone's faith by getting out on the road and getting out of your comfort zone. That's traveling as a pilgrim. During COVID, I, the only TV show I've produced is one called Why We Travel. And anybody can watch it anytime for free if they just uh, go to my website and look in the TV section. It's called Why We Travel. It's a love note to travel. And um, it's got half as many words, but twice the emotional and, and uh, sort of spiritual impact of anything I've ever done. I, I wanted to give it a little bit of structure. And I kind of thought, okay, there's three ways we travel, three reasons we travel. We travel to be a tourist, just to have fun, to see things. We travel to be a, what I call a traveler, which is to learn, to learn about other ways of doing things, to, to try new cheese, to get turned on by Botticelli and to go to a concert and uh, listen to a harpsichord. And then we travel as a pilgrim. A pilgrim is not to learn about the Renaissance, but traveling as a pilgrim is to learn about ourself. And as I mentioned, we learn about ourselves by leaving home and uh, putting ourselves in a different environment. It broadens our perspective, and it lets us take home what I consider the most beautiful souvenir, and that's a, a broader perspective, an empathy for the other 96% of humanity. Steve, a lot of people travel afraid of culture shock. Oh, you're going to have culture shock. Be careful. I travel in order to have culture shock. For me, culture shock is a positive thing. It's the growing pains of a broadening perspective. I don't get culture shock when I go to Las Vegas. Well, I suppose I kind of do, but in a weird kind of way. <laughs> but um, I get culture shock when I get out of my comfort zone. And I've been working just crazy with crazy focus ever since I was in, in college with my travel work and my, my travel teaching. Now I've got technology beyond my wildest dreams to amplify my teaching. And I've got a hundred amazing um, colleagues that work with me at Rick Steves Europe. And our mission really is to inspire Americans 
to venture beyond Orlando. Uh, you know, there's only one guidebook that sells better than my guidebook to Italy, my Rick Steves Italy book, and that is the guidebook to Disney World in Orlando. And that's, I, I understand, that's a huge market. That's, that's a kind of travel. I think it's escapism travel. It's la-la land travel. And uh, it doesn't get you out of your comfort zone, that's for sure. But I just think, sure, go to Disney World a couple of times. But after three or four trips, consider Portugal. You know, it's not going to bite you. And I just am quite surprised at how many Americans limit that curiosity or that sense of adventure that they would actually get a passport and venture into lands where people speak another language and they find different truths to be self-evident and God-given. I love that. It's hugely humbling. And uh, it was till well into my adulthood that I, that I realized, because of travel, that the world's not a pyramid with us on top and everybody else trying to figure it out. But the world is filled with beautiful people. It's filled with joy. It's filled with love. It's filled with inspiring individuals. And when I travel, I gain an appreciation for that. And when I come home, I'm happier than ever and more thankful than ever that I live right here in the United States. But I do bring home with me that enthusiasm for the diversity on this planet and that uh, sort of intimacy or, or, or closeness with the rest of humanity. And that's something I really treasure. It is complemented by my Christian faith, and I think it strengthens my Christian faith at the same time. You said something beautiful in a lecture I heard you give online, which is that you measure the success of a trip, not by how many places you went, but by how many people you met. And I think oh, that, yeah. that's a lovely perspective. And pilgrimage, I'd like to follow up on that for a minute, because as a tour guide, you get to go to the places that many people would go as pilgrims and even take people there. And you talk about a change of heart you had perhaps from a Lutheran background, of bringing people into St. Peter's and learning them to see that through different eyes. Oh, yeah. Well, Lutherans are good Protestants, and we're sort of raised with that sort of a feisty spirit. And uh, for many years, I would go to St. Peter's as a tour guide, and a travel writer, and I would be kind of angry. I would go inside and I would be thinking, you know, Where'd you get this money? And what, what could that money been put into other than all this splashy gold and all these starbursts? And uh, what about the Pope and all that kind of stuff? And I, I had kind of a negative approach to it, and I, I didn't enjoy my visits very much. Regardless of your flavor of Christianity, it's the greatest church in Christendom, St. Peter's Basilica. Well, I decided one year to park my Lutheran sword at the door <laughs> and go in as a temporary Roman Catholic. And it was an altogether different experience. I'm so thankful I did that. <laughs> and then I appreciated it. And it's just reminded me that I don't want to fight different people of faith about what's right and wrong. I just want to get close to God the best I can and humbly recognize that my particular brand of Christianity is, um, to a certain degree, because of my upbringing and, and my life story and, and who have my loved ones been who have cared about me and helped shape my perspectives, even outside of my Christian faith. You know, when I go into a synagogue, I like to embrace that culture, that faith, uh, and uh, use it as an excuse to get close to God. When I go into a mosque, I go to a mosque in a very positive and prayerful way. And I'm inspired by the faith of the Muslims I've met in my travels. And certainly when you travel around Europe, you find there are Orthodox churches, and boy, there's a lot of incense and a lot of candles going on there, and it's not my style, but it's a beautiful thing. 
And I'll never forget uh, the Greek Orthodox priest who explained to me about incense. He asked me something like, do you understand incense? Do you appreciate incense? And I, I thought, what? Incense is nothing for a Lutheran. And then uh, he explained to me how incense heightens the worshipful sort of ambiance of a church. And they even change out the incense during different parts of an of a Orthodox Mass uh, because it heightens different ways of feeling and, and, and being worshipful. And I just thought, that is a beautiful thing. Go to a, some sort of a more Roman Catholic style, and I guess the Orthodox style also, it has a big focus on meditation and, uh, and icons. And, uh, you know, you stare into an icon and it helps you meditate and, and you find yourself in a whole different sea. And this is a sea where you are embraced by God, thanks to that icon. I don't want icons in my church necessarily, but I sure appreciate and am thankful for the fact that a lot of people get close to God through icons. Uh, so I, I've learned in my, in my travels not to be judgmental, but to celebrate the different rituals and tools people have as we all struggle in our little maze of our human perspective and our human shortcomings here on earth in this lifetime, as we struggle to better understand our maker and get close to God. I've heard someone say that it's in learning a second language that you come to understand your native language. And it seems like learning about other people's way of observing their faith can actually maybe even teach you more about your own. Hmm, I think so. I think so. And I think a lot of times, this is just my take for as, a, as just a parishioner rather than a pastor or a priest or something, I think a lot of times the more thoughtful and educated leaders are in various denominations, the more they respect and understand that there's different flavors of Christianity. I think that sometimes I think religious leaders are obligated to go to battle for what distinguishes a Baptist from a Methodist or an Episcopalian from a Lutheran. And I think um, in the big perspective, <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, debating, uh, you know, what do you want to put on your baked potato? It's, uh, I think uh, the more thoughtful people are, the more they realize we can uh, give everybody a little wiggle room as long as we're going in the right direction. Does the fact that you have a belief in a higher power or in God, has that helped you in difficult moments? A cool thing about having a strong faith is you're never alone. Hmm. I spend 100 days a year for the last 30 years before COVID alone in Europe. I mean, I'm working, so I have guides that come and go and TV crews that come and go and tours that come and go. But basically, I'm over there alone. I don't have any entourage. And uh, the most powerful moments... The most beautiful moments, the most frightening moments, probably the happiest moments and the saddest moments. Most of them are when I'm alone, and uh, I'm never really alone. It's Maybe it sounds a little soupy to some people, but I've always got my Savior with me. Jesus is with me, and that's just a beautiful thing. That's an empowering thing, and I notice that when I'm on the road. I notice that more when I'm on the road than when I'm at home, and I think... Just in my work as a teacher, as a tour guide, as a writer, as a TV producer, as a guy who writes scripts, as a guy who's a host on a public television show, and so on, most of that is the secular world, and I have to be careful about not overtly proselytizing, but I think it gives me a certain passion, a certain insight, a certain empathy, a certain ability to see things in the proper context, 
that heightens my ability to be a teacher or a guide or a TV host. And I think it's been really important for my career from just a practical point of view. Plus, it gives me meaning. Yeah. Are there things that you do to stay connected or is it just awareness of that that makes you feel connected to the divine? A lot of times when I'm in Europe and I'm alone, like a baby yelps for joy, (laughs) I just kind of blurt out, I say, life is good. Life is good. I mean, life is good. You know, it could be too hot because of climate change. There could be hungry people in my midst. There could be, you know, the wounds of recent conflicts. But I look at the love and I look at the energy and I look at the the passion and I look at the hope and the promise. I'm inspired by people that really do love their neighbors. (laughs) I just say, life is good. And I'm really thankful for that. A a lot of people, they kind of are wired to say life is bad. I'm not just a loopy, perpetual optimist. I understand that life is good. I understand there's a historical sweep of things. I understand we're all on parallel evolutionary tracks. And some societies and some faiths are farther along than others, perhaps. But um, I really think that life is good. I think that more because I travel than if I just stayed home all the time. I'm just so thankful for the the moments I've had to sit on the top of the Royal Gibraltar and look across uh, the Straits and see Africa and to think of the history of people sweeping back and forth across that strait and think of the biology of fish and birds going with the tide and gathering there in the tide rips and, uh, and all the the abundance and the fertility and, and the dangers and the, and, and the strife and the growth and the ups and downs. And it's just a wonderful churning cauldron of life. But you can sit on the top of that rock with the apes of Gibraltar menacing your little bag because they want to grab it because there's an apple in it. And you can gaze across the Straits at Africa and you think, wow, this is the only place on earth where a person can see two seas and two continents at the same time. And just to sit there and, and meditate on where I'm at, it's a microcosm of the, of the energy of the world. I love to put that in a, in a context of, of my faith and what a blessing it is to travel. When I look at some of the recent specials you've done, and I'm including recent as maybe in the last decade since you've had a very long and storied career, you've been able to do specials introducing people in in the U.S. and in Europe to people in Iran, for instance, or to discuss Israel and Palestine. And I can't help but wonder if those, because there is religion mixed with those relationships Do you feel some sense of mission in that about connecting people and opening people's eyes and hearts to each other? It seems you must. You know, Steve, that's a good observation. And I I honestly haven't even quite put my finger on it like this so directly. But if I think of the specials, I do my episodes. I've done 150 episodes. And that's just Copenhagen, Berlin, Dublin, Lisbon. And, you know, that's just travelogues. But my specials have been my choice. I get to do whatever I want. And I do things, if I think of my favorite specials, they've been European Christmas, European Easter, Martin Luther and the Reformation, the Holy Land, Iran, and Hunger and Hope, Lessons Learned in Ethiopian Guatemala. Mm. There's six specials right there. And each one was major projects, major investments of time and money. And for me, hugely profitable, even though I made almost no money off them directly. I, I mean, I lost a lot of money making them, but hugely profitable in raising awareness, in shaping people's perspectives and, and heightening people's appreciation. 
Each one of those is a topic that I think smart, caring, and curious Americans need to know more about. These are smart, caring, curious people who are steep on the learning curve. And what I'm able to do with my little gig in public television is to take those challenges and give it a whirl as through the perspective of a traveler and see how we can get excited about them and understand them and appreciate them. You know, going to the Holy Land and trying to get a dual narrative of the story. What's the Jewish perspective? What's the Palestinian perspective? Going to Iran and uh, complicated and, and proud culture, heritage that goes back centuries and centuries before Islam swept through to understand that Americans, what we know about Iran, we learned from Ted Koppel on TV uh, when we were kids during the hostage crisis. That's pathetic. Uh, we, we owe it to ourselves, if not to uh, Iran and the Middle East, to better understand why Iranians would vote the way they do and what are the roots of some of the problems we have between our cultures. Um, as a Lutheran, I, I have a great admiration for Martin Luther as a person who was an agent of change. Christianity needed to be shaken up, and it was quite an accomplishment to do it. A lot of people tried and were burned at the stake. Luther was able to pull it off 500 years ago. How? Whether you're a Lutheran or you're a Christian or, or something else, it doesn't matter. Luther is an important guy to understand. You know, he, he did an amazing thing and helped, and it was part of humanism. It was part of the dawn of the modern age. It was uh, breaking out of the Middle Ages. People don't understand that. And uh, we've lived through the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It was in 2017. I thought, I'm not going to miss this. I'd have to wait another 500 years for the next one. I'm going to go over to Germany and uh, do the story. I, I feel very strongly that America needs to understand what is fascism and how do wannabe dictators uh, derail a democracy and, and how fragile is uh, democracy in a country that might take it for granted. Germany, Italy, Spain, Portugal, they learned very hard lessons in the last century from fascism. And I wanted to teach those lessons to Americans that uh, for whom history is speaking, but they're not listening to. I, I, I'm, I'm big into listening to history when it wants to tell us something. And it's time to tell us something right now. And I want to help it get, a, get across that message. So, you know, I've got my little gig in public television. So I got to make a TV show on uh, the lessons of fascism from the last century for countries today that are learning that their democracy is actually quite fragile. And which and seemed amazingly contemporarily applicable when it came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't say Erdogan or Orban or the Polish guy or our president or anything like that. I just wanted to explain that wannabe autocrats, whether they're left-wing or right-wing, it doesn't matter, they read out of the same playbook to overturn their democracies. And if you know what they're up to, then you can be wise to it. But if you don't know what they're up to, you get swept away in it. And suddenly, your country is not the country you thought it was. And that's happened in too many cases, and it's happening you know, all around the world today. Sometimes we Americans think we're immune to that, but we're certainly not. Germany thought it was immune to that in the 1920s and 30s, and it certainly was not. So we can learn from that. And if I'm a, a teacher or a guide or a pastor or something like that, I'm really happy to afflict the comfortable, you know, to rough people up with their perspectives. And uh, travel does that for me, and I can do that artfully with my travelers. And... Uh, my profit, I was going to say all those shows I made cost me a lot of money, but they were very profitable in the way I measure profit. 
and that is how many perspectives were broadened. If I can broaden a perspective, I'm profitable. And even during COVID, when I've had 100 people on my payroll now for 16 months and I have had almost no revenue, I've been profitable because we are still producing content that broadens perspectives, we like to think. And that's the value of travel. In everything you've done, even when it's tasting cheese and meeting with a, with a family in Tuscany and they have you over for dinner, I think the reason that you connect with so many people is because we see that you love to connect with people. That's something that comes through loud and clear and says something, I think, about who you are in your heart, which I think is also connected with how you see, as you mentioned, everyone mm-hmm. as fellow children of God. Yeah, you know, and, and um, it's interesting you say that because for me, the mark of a good traveler is how they connect with real people, not the woman in the with the hula skirt that gives you a lay at the airport in Honolulu, you know, not the lady in the dirndl that gives you a pretzel at the airport in Munich. But real people, people where, you know, who don't see you as part of the economy, but who see you as part of the party. If I'm making a TV show, if I'm making a guidebook, if I'm leading a tour, if I'm not connecting my American travelers with real salt-of-the-earth people, wherever we're traveling, I'm not doing my job. Yeah, that's, to me, really important. And in fact, when I was uh, making my TV show, Why We Traveled, as I mentioned, the only show I produced during COVID, the last section of it is called by traveling we connect and that's what traveling fundamentally is survived for we connect with the rest of humanity my latest book is called for the love of europe it's a collection of a hundred of my favorite essays and experiences in my travels i was trying to sum the uh, the book up and in the end it was all about the people you meet and the connections you make that's the mark of a good traveler that's why we travel and if i'm not connecting it's my mistake i've got to figure it out and get out there and, and make those connections because yeah, that's the that's those are the souvenirs. I don't bring home many souvenirs that you can actually you know that are tangible, but I bring home friendships and and new ideas and uh, a broader perspective. Those are my favorite souvenirs. I highly recommend for our listeners to go to ricksteves.com. My wife and I just recently watched that Why We Travel, and it, mm. it made me very excited. I hope not to be too much of a fanboy in talking to you because, <laughs> because we just related so much, and you have a gift of making people feel like, gosh, we wish we lived next to him because we know we'd want him over for dinner. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's Well, that's so nice, dear. I've just been – I'm really a fortunate person who found his niche – I work probably too hard, but I just love it so much. It it, it gives me energy, and it, it gives me meaning. I love to hear comments like that, Steve, because for me, it's really a shame when people don't recognize that you could reach out and hang out with people who find different truths to be self-evident and God-given, and then you become, I think, you just give your life an extra dimension. It just it just carbonates our existence in a beautiful way. And, um, you know, some people don't want that, to be honest. Some people just want to go to their grave with scrapbooks of them wearing a nice apron and at the barbecue surrounded by people who look and worship just like they do. But I'd rather um, celebrate diversity and uh, make a difference. And we can do that when we connect with the, the rest of humanity. Rick Steves, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a joy. Best wishes. That's our time for today. Thanks to Rick Steves for generously sharing his stories and his faith. Find out more about Rick, his books, his television shows and specials, and his activism at ricksteves.com. 
In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. And if you enjoy the show, be sure you leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our episodes are all online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.